Okay, today I'm in Gloucestershire with David Ashworth, journalist and prolific author. Um, thanks very much for taking some time, mate, to speak to us today. You've just said Ashworth's Curiosities of Horse Racing published. How many books is that? That's the tenth one about racing. Um, although in a previous life, I, I contributed to books on the 19th century poor law, and I wrote a book called Records of Achievement in the Marketplace when I was doing educational research. Okay, so you were, you, you came from a, an academic background before you got into the, the world of horse racing. Yes. Yeah, I mean, I didn't start um, full-time in sports racing journalism until I was 41, I think. Um, and before that, I had an ac academic career. I did a doctoral thesis on the treatment of poverty in 19th century Bradford. And um, then I lectured in history and economics and... And, uh, but I was but I was always very keen on racing, uh, you know. From at school, we a friend and I used to go to betting shop in Borehamwood High Street regularly, and um, we had a system. Actually, we had a system based on Lester Piggott. We decide how much we wanted to win, and um, I think it was about two pounds, and uh, then we'd put enough on to win the two pounds, whatever the odds were, um, and if. If it won, we'd start again. If it lost, we'd uh, go on to Piggott's next mount. Well, it's fairly obvious that it's a flawed system. And we soon realised after about seven successive losers that we wouldn't have enough money to put on the next one. So that system didn't work very well. I bet it worked to begin with, though, didn't it? It worked for, it worked, <laughs> well, it, it worked, it worked for a bit. And we went to the first, first time at a race course, we went to Sandown on... Uh, Len Scooter, and uh, that's what got me hooked on it, really. It's the excitement of it. You know, Lester rode a winner called Italiano. I don't know why I remember that. But, you know, just the excitement, standing by the rail and the sound of the horse and the whip and the jockey and the bookmakers and the three-card tricksters. Mercifully, you don't see those anymore. Prince Monolulu and other tipsters, you don't see them anymore either. You don't. You, um, I do remember the free card tricksters, just about from yeah. the, begin, the beginning of mine in inverted commas career. But um, anyway, so there's some wonderful characters in in the book, um, and from some quite obscure sources. I, mean, I spent a lot of my time googling, and I was fascinated and wanted to find out a little bit more. So, are you extremely well read, or do you just delve deeper? I like research. You know, I'm sort of um, used to research, and I enjoy research. I mean, some people would find it bizarre. I mean, my idea of a, a nice time is sit in the National Archives all day, <laughs> poring over documents. I just enjoy that. And uh, so you know, I put a lot of research into this book. I mean, probably two years. And um, it, it's exciting when you find, when you unearth something that's interesting. And uh, it's a nice feeling and I, I enjoy it. Is it getting a bit easier now to do the research with the newspaper archives online and stuff? Yeah, I mean, they're real. The archives that you can get to online, particularly the newspaper archives, are amazing, really. So I use those a lot, which are just as well. Energy levels aren't what they were. So, you know, travelling around to different archives would be probably less easy. Yeah. Um, so, what is everything? Did you sort of dig up everybody yourself, or does anybody mark your card? Um, occasionally I get a, a sort of lead from someone, but mainly they're things I've unearthed myself. Okay, so who's your uh, who's your favourite character in the latest book? 
Yeah, I think it's a guy called the 17th Lord Say and Sail. He's certainly not a favourite because of any sort of merit he had. He was a dreadful character, really. Um, but although, uh, and it was partly because of how I discovered the story, I went and visited Broughton Castle, just for somewhere to visit, really. And when I was going round, there was this cabinet which had um, a painting of a horse called Placida. I didn't know who she was, but she won the 1877 Oaks. And she was owned by the 17th Lord Say and Sale. And uh, I spoke to the son of the present Lord Say and Sale, who's the 21st one, who's 102, still alive. Um, and uh, he took me up, up some stairs to an attic and there was an enormous picture of Placida there. And anyway, he said that uh, if I wanted to, I could look at the family archives. And uh, so that's where I got the, the story from. And, I mean, it wasn't uncommon for the sons of aristocrats to gamble away the family fortune, but I don't think anyone could have done it on quite such a sort of determined and fatal way as the 17th Lord Say and Sale. He managed to bankrupt not only himself, but his poor father, who was Archdeacon of Hereford Cathedral for a while, probably in order to pray a lot, I should think. Um, so by the, by the time his father died, his father was no longer able to live in Broughton Castle, he had to let it. And the 17th um, Earl, who uh, the present one called a bad man, um, never lived in it. He always let it out. And when, he, when his father finally died, and he'd been borrowing money left, right and centre, um, all the rents from the massive estates weren't sufficient to cover the interest on all the loans he'd been taking out so it all ended in absolute disaster he was one of the ones i googled right. <laughs> <laughs> um, so we, we talked your, your writing career the racing if i got this right yeah. was in 1988 with the sporting life um yeah. you say you're 41 but sure the racing game was a relative late starter so when did the enthusiasm after going racing turn into uh, an ambition to actually earn money from uh, um well, I mean, I was really into racing. I mean, I, I always I used to say I only know much about two things, the 19th century poor law and ra racing. Those time form racehorse annuals, I'd get those and I'd literally read it from beginning to beginning to end, which seems a fairly uh, strange thing to do now. But anyway, um, and uh, I, I thought that along the way, I'd, I'd built up a sort of collection of characters who interested me, and I thought they'd be interesting to meet and write about, because I only never met any of these. They were all seen from a distance, and same with horses. And um, uh, it was when I was working at the National Foundation for Educational Research, I just sort of on spec wrote a piece which was prompted by Ilda Schieper's bizarre unseating Greville Starkey at uh, Ascot in 1988 and I just sent a piece in about the equine eccentrics um, which they published and then I wrote something else and then they you know they, they asked me to write other things and eventually they asked if I'd like to work for them full-time and eccentrics we'll go on to that in a bit but eccentrics seem to be a particular interest of yours but mainly human mm. ones yes they? That, that, I remember that first article for two things, really. One was that um, they'd put my byline as David Ashworth, which is fairly commonplace. And uh, the other thing was I was so excited when it came out and I took it into the education place and I uh, 
showed it to someone and she took it away to read. And after a while, I, she hadn't given it me back. And I asked, I asked if she'd got it, read it or got it ready to give me back. And she said, yes, I'm not sure where I put it. And then the next day she turned up triumphantly with this rather tatty article and said, it was in the bottom of the rabbit hutch. <laughs> so <laughs> I thought. So, you, so your first article, that one was published in 1988. Yeah. Uh, and then you started full time in 1990. Yeah. So did that, did you sort of carry on writing part time? Between 1990. You were doing the academic yeah, at the same stuff. time. Yeah, I was, I was working at the same time, yeah. Okay, and you mentioned the early days in your career. I did yeah. read a couple of funny stories, though I doubt they were funny at the time. Uh, you inquired, you rang a trainer and asked about a horse that had sadly broken its oh, neck a few oh, days right, before. Yeah. That uh, was, um, yeah, uh, Gordon Richards. I had to ring Gordon Richards and ask him about a horse called Full Strength. And I said, you know, I asked him how Full Strength was, and he said, not really well, lad broke his neck three days ago. <laughs> I wasn't very successful. And another one was I had to ring one of the War family. I can't remember. Jack, I think it was. No, it wasn't Jack. It was uh, Tom. I had to ring to give him the bad news that, um, I think I've got the names the wrong way around. It might have been Tom who died. Anyway, one of the wars had died. So I rang up whichever one of the other ones was. I said, I'm ringing. I'm sorry to hear that. Tom Wall, let's say, has died. And he said, died? He was only here a couple of days ago. God, died. You better ring so-and-so. It's another one of the Wall family. So I rang him and uh, he said, died? Died? Oh, you better ring so Jack Wall, you better ring. So I rang Jack Wall. Sorry to hear that uh, Tom Wall's died. And he would burst out laughing. He said, that's bloody amazing. And he walked out of the door 10 minutes ago. <laughs> so... <laughs> and one that probably wasn't quite so funny at the time, you went to interview a couple of jockeys. A couple of jockeys. Yes, there were, I thought it'd be a nice idea to interview a couple of apprentice jockeys who were having some success. So I went to Newmarket and met, the, one of them was called Stephen Quain, who I think was with Luca Kumani, and the other was Darren Biggs. Um, so I carried out the interview, and when I played the tape back, there was nothing on it. It was one of those moments that life's, life gives you to make you feel humiliated. Were you going racing much? Were you, were you sort of being um, sent off yes, to the I was, races? I, yeah, I was being sent off racing regularly. So yeah. did you sit in anybody's seat? Did you get any terrifying oh, castings? Yeah, no, I mean, I think most people were pretty nice to me. In the, in the office, in the sporting life, I was very lucky because on the news desk there was Nick Reeves and... Uh, Gary Nutting, Mike Catamole, and they were all really, they were all really, really nice. Good. It was a fun, fun place to work. Because a lot of the old, older um, members of the press room I've spoken to have nearly always got a horror story about their first day they sat in a seat that somebody sat in for 40 years. Oh, yes, yeah, there was a bit of that, and probably one or two people either wondered who I was or would rather I wasn't there, I don't know. Okay, I've, I've read, I do, I sort of Google stuff, so it, Correct me if I'm wrong, but Alistair Down and Ian Carnaby were sort of early influences on your career. Well, Ian was a friend at university, and you know he's been a friend ever since. Um, and then, you know, we ended up both writing for the Sporting Life, and you know I still see Ian regularly and go racing with Ian, and uh, you know so he's he's a lifelong friend really. And Alistair was responsible really for me getting the job at the 
um, Sporting Life, because at that time he was features editor. Um, and so, you know, it was he that I liaised with, really, about features. He used to write a weekly column in the Weekender in those days, and it was bloody funny. Very good. It was he on the same page as Geoffrey Bernard, I think, wasn't it? Oh, it column? might have been, yeah. Geoffrey Bernard, I interviewed Geoffrey Bernard once. He, was, he took about three vodkas before he sort of made contact with the world. I can remember there were the, the, the publican had letters waiting for him. And he, he opened these envelopes while I was there, and there's a picture of a very attractive woman making it clear that she was available if he'd like to meet her. And he sort of just pushed her aside dismissively. I thought, well, if he doesn't want her, maybe he'd like to pass <laughs> on to me. But, um, yeah, so, but he, um, Alistair used to, um, he'd sort of bustle into the office, usually quite late, but looking as if he'd just been to a very important meeting. But uh, he was, uh, you know, he was a, a character. And you said those columns were quite witty. Very. I remember. I'm yeah. pretty sure they were both on the same page in the yeah. weekend. Um, now, you've got a very dry sense of humour in your writing. Is that your writing style or is that you in life? I, I mean, it just it comes naturally to me. Um, I suppose, you know, you have different kinds of humour and that just happens to be my kind. Um, really thought about it a lot but that's just that's just how it comes out <clears throat> all right david um so how important would betting be in your life well not nearly as important as it used to be i mean it was important for a long time too important really um and uh now it's much less important um you i mean one of the things you used to do which is very popular with me. I don't know. I assume everybody else as well because it was regularly used to grab a grand for Christmas. Yeah, feature. you know, I still get people coming up to me and asking about grab a grand, and I think it was, you know, one of the um, more popular things I did. And what what was amazing was that uh, amazing to me was that um, I actually made money at it. In fact, I looked back, and um, I did. Uh, well, I may have done some earlier and I haven't got the records for it, but the last sort of 13 Grabber Grands, um, a couple of which were at Cheltenham, but the rest were before Christmas, um, I won almost £8,000. Um, and uh, I think I had nine winning years and four losing years. Um, and I, I did for charity, it was great. And um, I often think, well, <laughs> if I could win eight grand, on grab a grand why wasn't the rest of the year like that because it definitely wasn't well that I was i was going to ask that was did that trend continue no, throughout it, the year? no it didn't it was out it was you know out of the norm i am um, i can only think that it's because i put an extra effort into studying the form and so on i don't think it was because i used to go and ask trainers and jockeys you know what chances they had because um contrary to what some people think that in my experience isn't a passport to success no um so how many how many years did you do it for i'm not sure i got records for 13 years back to 2002 i think it was and and i had that you know fantastic win i backed um 2003 it was i backed ketty's warbler at 100 to 1 at uh, toaster and um at <clears throat> 20 each way at 100 at sp which was 100 to 1 in the Ladbrokes betting shop because you know there's not much point going to 
a bookmaker there and uh, there was a 10 to 1 on favour at Bourbon Mon Manhattan. There's not much point going to a bookmaker and uh, expecting them to give you, you know, a 50 odds on a 100 to 1 shot in a race like that. So I bet in the, put it on in the Ladbrokes betting shop on course and they made out a cheque for 2,400 and something. It was wonderful. It was a great relief. I think it was the first day of the week. It, the ground was like an absolute glue pot and um, Ketty's warbler led virtually the whole way. It acted on the ground and most of the others didn't. That's a tragedy that place didn't open still. Yeah, so. really. So and I also remember you for writing your, your betting ring reports at the big meetings. Um, do you fit? Did well? Did you used to enjoy doing that? You sort of ta um, talking to the bookies and. Um, I, I sort of quite enjoyed it. I mean, it was something I was sent to do, and so you know, I got to know some of the bookmakers well as a result, and it's very helpful. I mean, people like um, Adrian Pariser, who bets as Sam Harris. He's always been very helpful. Freddie Williams. I remember Freddie Williams at Cheltenham. I had a particular brief we arranged with Freddie that I could talk to him after each race and talk to him at the end about, you know, how, he, how he'd fared. And I could, he got the, he'd got the strongest Scottish accent imaginable. I thought, I can't understand what he's, what he's saying. This isn't going to go well. But it worked out all right in the end. And he was really helpful, even if he'd had a bad day. And his daughter, Julie, um, who now stands at his pitch, she was really helpful too. So I'm not sure how much I enjoyed it. It was quite stressful at times. Yeah. Because, they, you know, because you had to get the material. And a bookmaker at Cheltenham wasn't necessarily keen to give you a lot of time when you know his pitch was had a queue of punters there yeah especially after the first three favorites had gone you know yeah uh, do, do you think that that aspect the betting ring gets the attention it deserves these days because there's half the time there's not even a reporter at the races anymore no well i mean i think that's a shame that you know cost cutting i suppose by not having reporters there it's one of the things that uh, suffers as a result but okay there Going back to the characters in uh, Ashforth's Curiosities of Horse Racing, they're mostly all gone. But has racing yeah. become that sterilised now, or are those types of people still out there if you look for them? Well, I, mean, I think it's fair to say probably you don't have the number of characters you had before. I mean, it's partly, it's so much more professional, serious, policed um, than it used to be. And also, I think... Um, I think in jump racing particularly, you used to get big races at Cheltenham and elsewhere, sometimes won by small stables, and they were often that created a story, and someone who didn't get much, hadn't much of a profile, you know, it was something new. Well, I don't think that, it, it always seemed to me, that when I started, it wasn't really the, the, the top of the tree trainers I wanted to interview, who, although very successful, don't necessarily have the most engaging stories to tell. Um, it was, it was, you know, the characters who I, I enjoyed, who I wanted to interview. Any, any particular that stick in mind? Well, having said that, it wasn't always the successful ones. <laughs> Mark Prescott was one of the first people I interviewed, and he was um, one of the ones, you know, I was keen to interview. And uh, if you can't get a decent, you know, a decent piece out of so Mark Prescott, then you, you're struggling because he's one wonderful uh, 
set of anecdotes and he tells them so well and he's just very interesting and educational. Now, one of the people on the race course that I'm very fond of told me this week that you're very good friends with him, Sir Rupert Mackerson, otherwise known as the Bad Baronet. Right. Well, <laughs> so what can you tell us about Rupert? Well, because it's unusual for him to say he likes him. Yeah, he must have been in a good he must have been in a good mood. I can tell you there's times when he hasn't spoken so well of me. Um, I mean he's a one off, he's a real character. It's amazing how he he um he still does his bookstalls um despite, you know, having physical problems. Um so you know, full marks to him. For that, I mean, he sometimes gets infuriated, well, quite often gets infuriated with me, and I quite often get infuriated with him. No, he, he was kind enough when he found out that I was going to come and see you today, he was kind enough to send me a few questions. <laughs> now, several of them I've, I thought, well, I can't actually ask that, but there are a f there's two. He wants to know why do you love Brighton Racecourse so much? And most people, quite rightly, think it's lost its mojo 30 years ago. That's Rupert's quite rightly, not mine. So. Right, OK. <laughs> well, I mean, they used to have a derby trial there and, you know, there used to be some better class horses racing there than, than there are nowadays. But I, I like it because um, I associate it with having a good time. Um, you know, Ian and I and some other friends, we go down to the pitch and putt course by the sea near Rodine. We do that, have breakfast at the cafe, go up to a pub by the race course, go racing go on afterwards to um, you know, another pub and then uh, out to a restaurant. And we just had a good time. And, I, and uh, eventually, Ian and I sponsored a race there, a selling race. There's some pretty, pretty modest, to put it mildly, horses running in them. And we'd give the winners sticks of rock and coppers of Graham Greens, Brighton Rock and all the rest of it. And uh, Ian still sponsors the race, um, you know, last, last month. And, uh, you know, there's now probably about 15 of us go, and it's just to have a, have a good time. I, I stopped sponsoring it when I discovered spread betting. Um, but yeah, no, I, I, I enjoy I enjoy going. Yeah, they're, they're all class six and class five races on the whole. But, um, you have so, to elaborate on the spread betting comment there. Did, was it? Did it not well, go well? No, it didn't go terribly well. <coughs> I mean, I had my moments, but um, I remember I had a friend. A friend who was an expert on golf betting, and um, it must have been an open sometime. This must have been the early nineties, I suppose. Um, and he he was adamant that the uh, winning score at Sandwich, I think it was, would be high because there were forecast to be high winds. And so I um, bought the winning score. And Greg Norman, there was no wind, and Greg Warman, Norman proceeded to score in the 60s and break the course record, I think. That was pretty expensive. I mean, I had my moments, um, but I had other moments too. Okay. Yeah. Now, I the, haven't the, had a spread bet for decades. <laughs> the second, the only other one I could ask really of Rupert's question was, um, are you glad you left academia for the hurley Burley in racing? Yes, yeah, I am. I mean, I thought when I joined the sporting life, I thought it was bliss, really. You know, you could you could get to see the races on TV. You could you could bet. You could talk to other people who are enthusiastic about about racing. You could go racing. You know, you could you could um, interview people who you wanted to interview. Um, and uh, you know, it was it was bliss. I sort of felt I'd found my a bit late in life. I'd sort of found my niche.
Which is sort of not rude that you maybe followed that path a few years earlier. No, not really, because um, because um, I think I think um, I'm not sure I'd have had the confidence to do the job at the Sporting Life if I'd been in my twenties, maybe. Um, so no, I don't, I don't, I don't rue it, and it just means I'd have run out of ideas <laughs> at a younger age. <laughs> Now, you were one of the ones that survived the demise of the sporting life and carried on to yeah. the racing post. Was there much of a was there much of a culture sort of change from the old to the new there? Somewhat, I th yeah. I mean, it was a it was a very sad time because obviously, because some people kept their jobs and some people lost their jobs, and um, uh, the, the culture was slightly different. I'd say that the racing post was rather more serious than the sporting the atmosphere at the sporting life, but. Hey David, so, you, so it's his tenth, the tenth book on horse racing. Mm. Um, so when you when you embark on a new book, do you, um, are you? I suppose it's different for each title, but are you commissioned to write it? Do you pitch it, or do you write it and then try and sell it? It's been a mixture, mixture of the two. Um, but I know when you start, you sit and stare at the blank screen, and you think, "Oh God, I've got eighty thousand <laughs> words to write." <laughs> what do you do when do you have those days where you just can't get your head around it and you, what do you do to try and put yourself in the right frame of um, mind well i mean I, I i'll usually you know know what i'm planning to do and i'll i'll plan for it and do a structure for the book and all the rest of it um so I'm, i rarely sort of find that what on earth am i going to write um but I'm quite disciplined, or I have been, maybe not quite so much now, but I, I, I have generally been very disciplined. You know, I will, I'm focused on it, I want to write it, and I, I want to um, you know, give myself the space and time to be able to concentrate on it. So that's how, a, that's how I approach it. And how's your, uh, getting all the secrets here, how's your editing process? Do you write a chapter and then read it back and correct your mistakes, oh, or do you just plough through and... Oh, I'll, 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 you know, I'll sometimes dwell for ages on fiddling around with a paragraph, and I'm constantly sort of looking back and tidying up, and, uh, yeah, I mean, I like to, um, I may not always succeed, but I want to get things right rather than wrong, um, and that's, you know, that's important to me. So how disciplined are you? I mean, do you have a, when you sat down to write your 80,000 words, do you have a time scale and do you have a routine? And yeah, well, it, um, years ago, um, I, uh, I, when I was, uh, you know, had a full-time job at the live, when I was writing a book or books at the same time, I couldn't possibly do it now. Um, I'd start work at half four in the morning, maybe at home and do a, a two or three hours before I then started working on, you know, sporting life work. And, um, yeah, I mean, I've worked too hard, really. Work-life balance wasn't, wasn't what it should have been, I think, at times. It's not easy when you're, um, when you're trying to get on, is it? But, so this book is incredibly well presented, the, the, yeah. you know, the, the photographs and the, you know, that, obviously that makes a big difference when yeah. you've submitted your words and then you see that they've done a really good job in, in doing that. Yeah, I'm really pleased with it. I mean, I, th I, I, you know, thank you to Rupert 
Mackerson, he pointed me in the direction of the publishers, Merlin Unwin. And, you know, be, it's been a joy working with them. Um, it's felt really collaborative. And uh, I'm so pleased with the way the book's been presented, really pleased with it. And the Tote sponsored the cost of the illustrations, which can be quite a lot with copyright fees to pay and so on. And I did picture research for it. And, um, yeah, I'm just very pleased with how it looks, whatever the, whatever the good or bad of the text. And I love the cover. Well, I read the I read the book in two sittings, so um, that's hopefully a recommendation. <laughs> um, so, who are the people in the racing game that have made their biggest impression on you, for whatever reason? Um, Prescott. So, Mark Prescott would be one, and a trainer now dead, Arthur Jones, would be another. I don't know if you remember him. He had a yard near Oswestry. Um, he Russian Winter was his best known horse cheaply but won about 19 races and he had a one of his daughters Diana Jones I used to follow amateur riders races and ladies amateur races along when they first were introduced because the gulf between the good and the bad riders was so large and a lot of the races were conditions races rather than handicaps and uh, if you got to know the riders which in those days you could only really do very often by actually going to the race course and watching the race um, it was, I've, you know, it was a, one of my more successful betting mediums. And I got to know the family, and they were just lovely family, and, you know, I've been in touch with them ever since. And they they are an example of one of those small trainers who are at the sort of heart of racing, really. OK, you've, your, your racing life has taken you all around the world. Have you got any special travel adventures? The first time I went to the Kentucky Derby... Um, in the infield where lots of students and things. And they had um, a tradition, um, I don't know if they still have it or rather doubt it, where girls would be sitting on blokes' shoulders and boys would shout out, lift your top, and the girls would lift their, lift their top up. So I remember that. Another one's in the, I can't remember what year it was now, but there was... Um, it's a long story, but I'll tell it briefly. There was a very eccentric trainer. He'd only just got his license, Dr. William Livingston, who'd brought a very bad horse from New Mexico. He was entered in Breeders' Cup turf. And because there wasn't a full field, try as they might, they could not prevent him running this horse. Rick's Natural Star, it was called, in the race. And uh, he uh, invited me to to sit on the horse. So I had a photograph somewhere of me sitting bareback on this horse, Rick's Natural Store. Who, so I've ridden almost in the Breeders' Cup. He tra trailed in distant last, in fact, so far last, that I think when you look at the, um, uh, you, you look at the result of the race, they didn't even put him in as last place. <laughs> Do you still go racing on a regular basis? Not as often as I used to. Um, that's partly been... It's not because of lack of desire. Um, I'm going to uh, I'm going to the Velka Pardubice, um next week, or this week, um, and I've been there a couple of times and with some friends. You know, I'm sure we'll have a good time. And uh, no, I, lo I, lo I love going racing. Mainly, I enjoy going to small meetings as well as big ones. I find it more relaxing. Now, racing does appear to be under the cosh in several respects. I mean, how do you feel it's faring and what would you change about it if you had the power? 
Well, I think they've got a, a serious problem with the governance structure because you've got an authority, the British Horse Racing Authority, which has responsibility, but it doesn't have the necessary power. So, you know, when it comes to controlling fixtures, which is obviously important, um, it's not in a position to control them properly. And, of course, you've got the chronic problems of um, sectional disagreements. So, I mean, it has serious problems, I think. Um, sometimes, it's been, this is a very minor point, but sometimes it's been lacking in imagination. I mean, I remember years ago when, um, I think it was William Hill, David Hood at William Hill, suggested running, holding four furlong races. William Hill offered to sponsor them. I couldn't see any reason not to do it, really, although there were voices which said it would be a terrible stain on the uh, purity of the thoroughbred. Um, I still think that would be something they ought to they ought to do. They can get sponsorship easily. I, th I think it has a problem because it's just down the pecking order in the sports hierarchy, and that's quite difficult to change. It doesn't get the coverage... Uh, in national press that it used to. The big race days still attract um, big crowds and, you know, there are a lot of race days, ladies' days and all the rest of it which attract big crowds. Um, but it's got a problem, obviously, in, in, in how to make it more popular, basically, particularly with young people. There are a lot of people who look bald and old like me who go racing. Um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, you know, it's not—it's not a one-minute one subject. Is so it? this is this is um, this is a continuation from the bold and old. But Rupert mentioned these people, but I couldn't. His question wasn't worded in the way I should. But tell us about tell us about the Sedgefielders. Oh yeah, they're they're um, Sean McGee. Um, you know, was was the leader of this group who uh, I, I joined after they'd been going to Sedgefield two or three times. They sponsored a race there, and the idea was because it was involved a journey for most people that gave it something special it wasn't just going to a local track and we'd go up there we'd stay at this ho this nice hotel um we'd go to the races and um uh it was just a sort of group that got on really well and i made some you know new friends there which is nice and uh and we did it each year and just had a, just had a good time <laughs> just had a good time really um and we sponsored the durham national for a while and it, it's I think it's it's stopped really a couple of years ago I think it had sort of partly run its course but we keep meaning to resurrect it maybe somewhere else and it Graham Sharp's one of those yeah Graham Sharp yeah Tim Helston Tim Cox who has that magnificent live racing library uh Steve Dennis and um yeah and various others friends of Sean's and it's, it's just a good group and, and the same group pretty much went on a trip to Ireland to um, uh, an anarchal tour, and that was very successful too. Now, Graham, um, you know, I'll show you what Mummy mentioned. That Graham mm. is a prostate cancer survivor. Yeah. I recently interviewed him about his book, Prostate Cancer. Yes, yeah. Um, and you're a survivor as well. Apparently, quite mm. a few of the Sedgefielders. Right, yeah. Uh, <laughs> it's, yeah. So. Um, yeah, so, yeah, well, I mean, I had, um, I've been really lucky because um, having been diagnosed later than I should have been, really, um, I had my prostate out and that didn't cure it. I then had radiotherapy, that didn't cure it. Dr. Glum, which is what I call my oncologist because 
when you went to see him, he always looked as if he was about. He always looked as if he was about to tell you that he'd had some terrible news, but actually he was about to tell you that you'd had some bad news. And I, I, he predicted that. So I went on to hormone therapy, which can manage it for so long, but not not cure it. And I asked him, well, how long is it? You know, would you expect it to manage the disease? And he said, well, two or three years, perhaps. Well, that was about twelve years ago. And uh, I'm still on intermittent hormone therapy, which, you know, has side effects that you'd rather not have. But nevertheless, um, I've just been very lucky. So, you know, I'm fine. I'm looking forward to dying of something else. <laughs> now, I have heard through the grapevine that the Racing Post have a big library of obituaries for people who are still with us. Do you, <laughs> do you think they've probably written yours far too early then? <laughs> I shouldn't think so. No, I'm going to think if I died in the morning, I'm sure they could knock something up by tea time. So. <laughs> the racing writers never really retire, do they? Uh, so no. have you got your next book in the crosshairs already? No. And, I, I, you know, I don't have the energy levels that I used to have. I used to have an enormous appetite for work, really ridiculous. Um, but if, I had, if, if there was a good idea, if I could come up with a good idea or if someone could come up with one for me um then you know i wouldn't say that i won't produce another book but it's quite likely that'll be my last one okay so the last one being david ashworth's curiosities of horse racing out now on what's the publisher merlin unwin yeah unwin um, um, comes highly recommended anyway david ashworth can i show you the cover yes because I'll, i love I'll the cover pose the cover okay. on there. oh actually no you can show me the cover okay. there you go. i just i love the cover um I just think the photo is great. I love that photo. It's right. That's the the Grand National. The the, uh, yeah. the owner didn't end too well there, did he? <laughs> Joe Mincemeat Griffin. He started <laughs> off very well, but ended up very badly. Um, yeah, it was the 1953 Grand National early mist. Yeah, and yeah, you, you, so. you will find yourself googling most of these stories when you read the book. I guarantee it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, um, well, you know, I hope it does well, but who knows. Excellent. Well, that's David Ashworth. Thank you very much. Okay, thanks. Thank you.